Good morning. There is a reason why I am committed to expositional preaching. There's a purpose behind biblical preaching. When we take verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, and we preach what the Bible says. The first reason I'm committed to it is simply because it is the written Word of God. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its historics are true, and its decisions are changeless. We believe this is the inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. So therefore, it's my responsibility to handle it accurately because it is the Word of God. And I certainly feel that pressure on my own life to be faithful to the, to, to the proclamation of the Word. But there's a second reason why I believe it's vitally important to preach the Bible expositionally. It's because you can't skip over difficult texts if you preach the Bible. It's very easy when you're a topical preacher to jump from story to story, right? Skyscraper preaching, just jumping from story to story. However, when it comes to being an expositor, that means you have to take the books of the Bible individually, and then you preach it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So what that means is you're going to go through certain passages that are tough. You're going to preach on things that are difficult and things that are tough. Uh, that's probably gotten me into a lot of trouble at this church because you haven't been exposed to certain things and the preacher shares a text that has a major tension in it and you're like, wow, uh, my feelings here are going to outweigh the Scripture, and I'm just going to do my own thing and believe the, my own thing. Well, I want to encourage you that that's not the way we can handle the Word. We have to look at it and say, hey, there's a tension there. There's certain aspects that I don't fully understand, but I'm going to take God at His Word, and I'm going to believe not in my individualism or my own desires, the way I want God to be, but I'm going to actually submit to the God of the Bible which is the only God that exists. So I felt it necessary to tell you that. Why? Because chapter 8 is hard. The book of Daniel, chapter 8, it's not easy. When we're preaching through chapter 7, it's hard. As a matter of fact, interpretation-wise, chapter 7 is probably more difficult than chapter 8. Why? Because the Lord is going to give Daniel a vision, and then the angel Gabriel is going to obey the Son of God and give to Daniel the interpretation. Don't y'all wish Revelation was like that? Alright, here's what it says. And then the angel Gabriel will say to us, this is exactly what it means. That is a blessing to have that. So the thematic structure of the rise of the deceptive king that we're going to see today, the major theme in all of this is the fact that there is impending trials coming upon the people of God. Right? But the people of God need to remember that God is the one who rules the nations, and He's actually the one who actually rules the leaders as well. Do you remember back in Daniel chapter 2? You don't have to turn there, but let me set the stage for you. What does Nebuchadnezzar, what does he come to understand about the king, the real king? He says in chapter 2, verse 21, Our God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Pretty strong, isn't it? So in the midst of impending trials like the Israelites had never seen before, they need to be reminded that God rules the world and that God rules the leaders of the world. So I want to do two things today. I'm going to divide this text out the way it naturally divides. And there is a break at the end of verse 14. So the first section is God giving Daniel this vision in the third year of Belshazzar. He's going to give him this vision uh, that's going to be alarming to Daniel. And then Daniel's going to seek to know the interpretation. And that's what you have picking up in chapter 8, 
verse 15. So first, let's read chapter 8, 1 through 14. I know this is a lot of reading, uh, but what the Bible has to say is is more important than what I have to say about it. All right, listen to the word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. So he had his first vision, right? First year of Belshazzar's reign. And here is the next vision given to him. Chapter 9 will be the third and final vision. And it's going to be the absolutely most difficult for us to interpret. So it's, the crescendo effect is in gear here. Verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Eli Canal. I'm sorry, Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was none, there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Check this dude out. Without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And notice the verb, the verbs given here, how intense it is. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him close, close to the ram. And he was, check this out, enraged against him. Struck the ram. Broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was, one, there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn. Y'all remember this trajectory of a pattern of a little horn? Here we are again. Which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Israel, right? Glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering. Underscore this word. Because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Wow. Are y'all ready? I'm glad we get to verse 15 eventually. But let me remind you... That Daniel is working backwards. If you remember last week in chapter 7, he was dealing with the fourth beast, which is what? Rome. And now he's going to be dealing with the Medo-Persian Empire. And then ultimately he's dealing with the Greek Empire that leads to the Seleucids, which points out the rise of the deceptive king who is in fact Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, I know that because of the explanation given a little later. So he's working backwards. Why would, why would the writer, why would Daniel work backwards? Well, I think it's because of relevancy. Why? Because the Israelites are about to hear the call from Cyrus to go back to their homeland and build the walls out of, in Nehemiah, <clears throat> correct? So 
it's more expedient for them at this moment to hear that, hey, 70 years are almost over, but the tribulation is not. Because the Medo-Persians, uh, we're going to get the edict to go home, but, but that's not going to be the end of the persecution. There's another one coming from the Greek dynasty that is going to be even stronger. And then out of that Greek dynasty, there's coming another one that's going to be even stronger than that. And I want to remind you folks, there's one coming in our end times that's stronger than all of them. Okay? That's the way the trajectory is out. So, again, when would Daniel have received this vision? Most scholars believe it was probably between 550 and 548 B.C. when he gets this vision. Again, folks, he's going to be prophesying things. The first time, in the first part of the interpretation, I mean the prophecy, he's prophesying things that are going to take place 200 years from the time he's writing it. The second part of the rise of the deceptive king is going to be something that takes place 300 years after God gives this vision to Daniel. Isn't that amazing? Folks, the Bible says in Psalm 119 verse 84, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Do y'all really believe that? Do you really believe that you can take God at his word? So here he is telling us remarkable detail of what's going to take place. And we know it took place because we saw it in history. The annals of history prove that the word of God was right. Now there are liberal scholars in the world that refuse to believe that Daniel wrote this book. You know why? Because there's no way... That a man can predict what's going to happen 200 years and then 300 years in the future. Well, I've got news for you. They deny the supernatural. I don't deny the supernatural. I believe we have a God who is on his throne. So if you put God on his throne, then this is not impossible. Because God knows the beginning from the end. He knows it all. And so he gives it to Daniel. Actually, what these liberal scholars say, that this is called vaticinium ex eventu. Now that's Latin. Did y'all get that? You know what it means? It's prophecy after the fact. So the liberals believe that whoever wrote this actually wrote it in first century BC because they waited to see all the events and then they just wrote them down. That's real sweet, isn't it? (laughs) The problem with that is that's not true. Daniel wrote this book in the sixth century BC and it's phenomenal. And it's amazing. And I want want you to know up front that you can take God at his word. So he sees this area of the citadel of the Susa. I do not believe that Daniel was transported there. I believe he's telling you that he saw the vision. And I think he's in Babylon when he sees the vision. However, he's looking at it at the canal of Uli. So, Daniel sees ahead to this dominant empire. In verse 3, he implements common visionary language. And he says, he sees a ram with two horns, but one horn growing larger than the other. Do you all remember back in Daniel chapter 7, when he sees this particular empire, what is it depicted as? There it's not a ram, it's a bear, but it's raised up. This bear is raised up on one side. Daniel chapter 7, verse 5. So it, what is it depicting? Well, it's depicting the Medo-Persian Empire, but one part of the empire is more dominant than the other. Okay, The Persian Empire was always more militaristically uh, dominant than the Medo-Persian side. So here a horn comes up later, grows larger, demonstrating the Persian dominance of this particular beast or this nation. So this ram is budding in every direction. And what do we know? It's, it, this guy appears... This king, this kingdom, appears invincible. He goes about and destroys what he pleases. The ram is self-willed. The ram is self-exalting. And he understands this to be the Medo-Persian Empire. Do you know what happened in chapter 5? Do you remember? Belshazzar has this drunken orgy. He has a party. That's what he does. And the Lord God puts... Handwriting, mine, mine, tk, farson. You've been weighed in the balance found wanting, and this dude dies immediately, right? Y'all remember the story. And so this is depicting how, when, when Daniel, think about this. If God gave Daniel these visions during the reign of Belshazzar, 
then you understand the boldness that Daniel had the day he walked into the chamber and says, hey, king, this is you, and this is what's going to happen. You're going to die. Why did Daniel have that kind of boldness? Because the God of eternity had already given him two visions, right? He already knew that, that Belshazzar's in trouble. He already knew that the kingdom of Babylon was going to fall. So the Medo-Persian Empire comes in, and uh, as a matter of fact, the Babylonians don't even give hardly any resistance whatsoever. They just kind of gave up. And history tells us this because they couldn't stand against them. They're no match. So as this ram is budding the nations around it, here comes this male goat out of the west. And it's awesome. It's so awesome that its feet doesn't even touch the ground. Any of you ever messed with a mad goat? When I was a kid growing up in Georgia, my grandmother had some goats. And we would antagonize those things. But one old red goat with a black stripe down his back, we didn't want to fool with that rascal. If you grabbed a hold of his horns, you had one option, to run as fast as you could. Just let go and run. And he would run you and run you. And if he, got, he would knock you over into a briar patch and he would, you don't want to fool with a mad goat. I'm just telling you. You remember that Andy Griffith show when he eats the dynamite? That's one mad goat, right? I love that show. And Barney doesn't want to fool with this goat. But here's this mad goat. And what's depicted is this notable middle horn that's in its head. But think about this. This is incredible. It's expansive. It's quick. And the goat is the Greek empire. And it is swift. And it's expanding. And the noticeable horn in the middle is none other than Alexander the Great. Okay? And it's described for us. Check it out. This is 200 years. He's prophesying what's going to take place in 330 B.C. Amazing. And so, it's described for us in chapter 7 of verse 6 as a leopard with four wings with incredible mobility. You've got to put these two together. So where it was, was a leopard there with incredible mobility, here it is as a goat with this single horn up in the middle. Again, Alexander the Great. Who was he? He was the son of Philip of Macedon. And Philip of Macedon was an incredible military genius. And he actually raised his son to be the greatest military genius in the history of the world. Alexander was trained and educated by none other than Aristotle himself. So at the age of 21, he would become the ruler of the entire Greek empire. And he would end up being an instrument used of God. Y'all remember? Who raises up kings? God. Who disposes of them? God does. So God raises him up. So just a little background. This is free. Doesn't cost anything in the sermon. Right? Think about this guy. God begins to use him. He desired to conquer the entire world. But he also wanted to Hellenize the entire world. In other, wor in other words, he wanted Greek culture to be experienced in the entire known world. He wanted to Hellenize the entire known world. So his desire was actually a desire that was pushed by the providence of Almighty God so that it was prepared for the Greek New Testament. Isn't God awesome? Everybody in the known Roman world would be able to speak Greek because of Alexander the Great. Thus, when the Bible was written, it was written in the Greek language. Why? So that the common man on the street could read the Word of God could understand it, so that the gospel could get to me and you. Are y'all listening? So that the gospel could get even to the United States of America one day in the future. So God's ways are so mysterious, and they're amazing. So here's this goat, and he's soaring across the ground. Let's call this dude an air-propelled goat. And he's mad. And he's propelled across the ground. And it comes up to this ram with two horns. And there's a, man, there's an intense clash. Keep this in mind. Again, Daniel is prophesying something that would be 200 years later. Because of the incursions of the Medo-Persians into Greek territory, the Greeks were ticked off. They were so furious. Thus the, the, the verbiage here in the Word of God. Trampled, smashed, broken, uh, furious. And that's the way Alexander fueled the animosity against the Medo-Persian Empire. 
And what you see in verses 6 and 7 is the power of Alexander's well-trained army. And they're motivated by explosive. This air-propelled goat is furious and mad. And there's this battle. It rushes forward as a mad goat uh, and hits the ram with mighty wrath, strikes the ram, shatters its horn, hurls him to the ground, tramples on him. In 331, Alexander would take only 35,000 men filled with all this animosity against a Medo-Persian army of 100,000 footmen and 10,000 horsemen. And Alexander's army absolutely slaughtered them. Mm. Alexander's army, again, uh, at the Battle of Isis and one other battle, he, began, he gets the ultimate victory over the Medo-Persian Empire. It's a pretty awesome story, isn't it? It all is prophesied 200 years before any of those events take place. What happens in verse 8 is that the male goat magnifies himself exceedingly. He, did you all know that within a mere 12 years, Alexander at the age of 33 had conquered the entire world? Pretty impressive, isn't it? He actually, before his death, would want to be preferred to as the king of kings. Now you're drawing the line in the sand with the Lord of heaven, right? He wants to be called the king of kings, but he dies. You notice how the text just kind of gives it to you like, hey, he's, he's there for a moment, mighty, mighty, but he's gone. In all likelihood, he died of typhoid fever. Alexander did not have an heir. So just before his death, he knew that no one on planet earth had his abilities, and so instead of leaving his kingdom to one person, he, he actually has four generals that he brings together. Now, how Daniel describes, notice how he describes this 200 years before. Alexander would divide his kingdom among four generals. And you know this from history. Are y'all having fun with this devotion? Alright, don't go to sleep on me. Cassander takes Macedonia and Greece. Lysimachus takes Thrace and Asia Minor. Ptolemy takes Egypt and the Seleucids, uh, or, or takes Egypt and Seleucus takes Syria and Mesopotamia. So if you remember, the leopard back in chapter 7 had four heads. So we're seeing the, uh, how 7 and 8 actually fit together. And now beginning in verse 9, he's going to go fast forward. Notice a small horn grows out of one of those that grows larger. What we know is about in 175 B.C., out of the Seleucid dynasty, in other words, one of the four formed out of Alexander's death when he, when he promotes those four generals, in 175 B.C., now this fast forwards not 200 years, but 300 years, around 175, there comes a ruler out of, out of the Seleucids named Antiochus IV. The Bible says he rises in power. He's described as a little horn. That grows exceedingly. This cat is incredibly ambitious. He extends his rule all the way up to the holy city, which is Palestine. He would also take Egypt in the process and battle against the Ptolemies. When the Bible says that the stars are described in this text, I would bring your mind back to Abraham. When God's people will be numbered as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the seashore. So I believe this is referring to the people of God, which makes sense when you think about the promise. So this person is going to cause many of the people of God to die. Pull down the stars. He's going to cause people to die. Okay? Which, again, he'd also get the leaders. When Antiochus goes into Jerusalem, he sacks the city. And historians say that 40,000 Jews died in three days. Unbelievable. Pick back up in verses 11 and 12. Listen to the word of the Lord. It, it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. Who do we believe that is? Well, I personally believe it's referring to the incarnate Son of God. However, it could just be referring to the Lord, uh, God. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. That is the prince of hosts, right? And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw the truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. 
So, again, he'll get the leaders as well. He'll kill many. As a matter of fact, he's actually going to have the high priest killed. And he's going to put his own high priest in the temple, uh, leading so-and-so, such-and-such, the people of God. So here's this ruler, and his kingdom is spreading. And he moves to Jerusalem, and he exalts himself up as God. Does that sound like 2 Thessalonians? Right? The coming Antichrist in the future, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So after this victory, Antiochus is going to take on a new title. Check this out. He's going to be called Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. Y'all know what that means? He sees himself as God manifest. This ruler is going to see himself as God. It says he removes the regular sacrifices. It tells us that he will actually throw down the sanctuary. Now, have you guys ever heard of the Apocrypha? Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Those are some of the books that the Catholic Church believes are inspired, but we do not believe they're inspired. There's two of those books called First and Second Maccabees, and although it's not inspired, they sure do fill in a lot of gaps when it comes to Antiochus Epiphanes, and you can read this for yourself if you'll look it up. But it was written sometime uh, between 125 and 100 B.C., their historical Books and it details Antiochus's attack upon Jerusalem. And in 1 Maccabees 1.20, it talks about Antiochus' return from conquest of Egypt. And then he marched, marches straight into Israel and Jerusalem. And in his arrogance, he enters the very temple and puts a pig on the altar. Man, I'm going to tell you folks, that, that's crossing the line in the temple of the Lord. It says he took them to his own country having caused much bloodshed and gloated over it. Later in chapter 1, we find this in Maccabees. Burnt offerings and sacrifices in the temple were forbidden. The temple ministers were defiled. Unclean beasts were sacrificed on the altar. The Jews had to leave their sons uncircumcised. Can you imagine what that meant to Jewish people? They had to forget their law. If anyone was seen carrying the book of the law, they were murdered or killed immediately during this time frame. Daniel prophesied this some 300 years before it happened. Mm. Now Daniel says clearly this is about a transgression. Did y'all see that? Well, who's the transgression upon? Well, it's the transgression of the Jews. And, And let me just cut to the chase to help you see how this works. The Jewish people had actually started slipping backwards before Antiochus ever comes into Jerusalem. What they actually do is they start making a treaty with this dude. And they actually ask Antiochus to change some of their laws. So here's the people of God making a treaty with the devil. That's the transgression. The people of God were not living like the people of God. Hello, U.S. Hello, every civilization that's ever been known to man that's absolutely absolutely came to an end. So the transgression is the transgression of the very people of God. So it is God Almighty that's raising up these nations. It's God Almighty that actually raises up Antiochus IV. And why is he doing this? Because his people are rebellious and sinning against him. It's quiet in here. But that's exactly what's going on. That's what the transgression is. But all hope is not lost because God Almighty is going to show up. Okay? We know this. But later on in the chapter of Maccabees around 145, we see something of the abomination of desolation. And many historians believe that Antiochus actually went in and put a statue of Zeus in the temple. Again, they're putting pagan altars built throughout Judea. Scrolls of the law could not be found and were thrown away. That means the people didn't have the word. Anyone found in possession of the covenant that didn't conform to the laws of Antiochus Epiphanes, they died. So Daniel says that this little horn does this and prospers. He does all this unhindered. There's no one to stop him. Now imagine if you're Daniel and you're in exile and you're doing your best to keep the law of God and be faithful to him and this is the vision that you see. How would y'all feel? Oh, see, I believe Daniel wrote Psalm 119. Just look at his commitment to the law of God. And then yet his own people in the future 
are not going to be committed to God. They're going to, they're going to actually profane the temple and commit uh, covenant infidelity to God. They're not going to keep their commitments to the Lord. And Daniel sees this. So, in verses 13 and 14, we've got to pick up some steam. Daniel hears two angels speaking, holy ones. You see it? One asks the other, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And the question is asked for Daniel's benefit. And the statement is 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, some of you will notice that in your Bible there's parentheses around this construction of 2,300 years, 2,300 mornings and evenings. Why is that the case? Especially in the NAS, it's bracketed in italics. Well, it's because it's a peculiar uh, interpretation. That 2,300 years could actually mean a couple of things. It could mean, as I believe, uh, literal days like the creation narrative. Six-day creation, seventh-day rest. Okay, It could mean that. Or it could be referring to morning and evening sacrifices. Why? Because the context is about sacrifices. That's going to be taken away. When do the sacrifices take place? Morning. Am I going to have to start all this over? All right. Mornings and evenings. So, you got two... You got two things working in your mind according to the Jewish calendar. It could have been seven years, right? Or it could be morning and evening sacrifices, which would be divided in half, which would be 1,150 days. Now, if you're thoroughly confused, just raise your hand. But, but notice, three and a half is used, and a full week is used, which would be seven weeks, or a week missing when you, when you get to chapter 9. But just for the sake of right now... Uh, understand, I think, for the most part, it's dealing with the sacrifices that were cut off. Morning and evening sacrifices. For 2,300 of those, split in half, 1,150 days, which would be about three and a half year period. How long did Antiochus sack Jerusalem? Three and a half years. We know this from history. So, I think I'm tracking right here. Now, incidentally, there's been several knuckleheads who have developed some kind of Bible code throughout the days with a number of 2,300. Isn't that sweet? Right? So they figured out everything that's going to happen in this world based upon 2,300 days. Now, in verse 15, Daniel desires to understand the vision. A voice like a man comes. Uh, Gabriel is going to give the man understanding. It, or, or, or the angel said, well, I think it's the Son of God speaking to Gabriel. Give this man the understanding. Isn't that awesome? I like that. This dude, who's nothing, he calls him the son of man, which is not referring to the son of man like the son of God. It's, it's really humanity of humanity. Ezekiel was called a son of man. Give this son of man the understanding. And uh, again, y'all know what I, what I feel about angels, right? They're not fat little babies with sissy wings. Just... Just get that out of your mind. That's not what an angel looks like, no matter what you see around Christmas or whatever you think an angel looks like. And, and also remember this, they're always used in masculine form in the Bible, not female, not female. It's always masculine form, okay? So, here's this angel, Gabriel. And uh, can an angel learn? Well, I think they can, because he didn't say to Daniel, do not be afraid. And what happens to Daniel? He's on his face. Because of the glory of the one he's in front of. You know, this is going to be the same angel that's going to come and give the news of John the Baptist's birth and the birth of the Son of God. So here's Gabriel. By the way, Daniel is the only book of the Bible that names angels. Wow, amazing. So here's this little fat baby with sissy wings. He is so harmless that Daniel just falls on his face. No, that's not it. Anyway, Gabriel means God is my warrior, and Daniel is called the son of man, and it says, I'm going to give you the time of the end. And some of you are saying, a hot dog, give me some chocolate, cocoa, and let me have something to eat. This is the end. Not so fast, my friend, right? The context is king, and what is going to happen uh, is that this is going to be the end of this particular persecution. That's going to end at the Maccabean revolt when the temple is rededicated. 
That's going to be the end of this. So don't jump to conclusions. Every time you see the word end, it doesn't necessarily mean the end of time. So the time of the end that Gabriel's talking about is at the end where the vision takes place. We will see in chapter 10 and 11 that God will bring a magnificent end to another vision. So the end must be constrained by the context. Okay, now in verse 18, Daniel is probably suffering from a God-induced sleep. And he is somewhat comatose. He fell into a deep sleep. My face hit the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. And he gives, them the interp- gives Daniel the interpretation. Are you ready? All right. Here's the, here it is. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. Notice he's using the term end, appointed time. But then listen. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Did I get it right? The Bible says that these are the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And the goat is the king of Greece, who is none other than Alexander the Great. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. Oh, folks, underscore that. No king ever comes to power by himself. It's not his power. God put him there. Are y'all reading that correctly? And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. How did he get his power? Antiochus Epiphanes IV was given his power by God. But not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does. And destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. Uh, It goes back to the stars, right? That are falling. Here's the interpretation. He's going to destroy men and the people who are the saints. 40,000 in three days are going to die. Imagine how this affected Daniel. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. (laughs) Ain't that good? He shall be broken, but by no human hand. In other words, it'd be really good for you to see in this story that there's going to be some guy welding a sword that's going to jump up and just whack his head off. I mean, that's what you guys watch on TV, right? And you're like, whoa, we won the victory. He's going to die. But he's not going to die by human hands. God's going to kill him. He's going to speak the word. And Antiochus is going to die. So, the Bible says, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome... And I lay sick for some days. Then I rose. (laughs) Don't you love this? This is good. And I went about the king's business. Oh, that's good preaching. But I was appalled by the vision and I did not understand it. So some of you ought to feel good today. I mean, I've been giving you all this stuff and you're like, man, I don't understand any of this. Well, it was given directly to Daniel and the interpretation. And he said, I still... Don't understand this. So, just there's no need to walk back through all the detail that's given here. But just think for a moment. I mean, we've just read what Antiochus is going to do by, inter- by vision. And then we see what Antiochus is actually going to do to the people of God. Uh, his power is going to be unbelievable. Uh, again, The people of God, though, make a treaty with the dude. They transgress, which is often the case. They're not obeying God. And then, you know, Antiochus is going to come into the holy city. And he's going to walk in and all the Israelites are going to think, Hey, everything is so good. And he turns right around and kills all of them. Because they made this pact with the devil. And the transgression ends up being 
the fact that, notice some of the techniques. The, they said this guy's clever. And he was. He was seductive. And he made the Israelites think that all was good. And then he comes in and he kills them. He's malicious. His power was given to him by God himself, however. Uh. So that is the point of Daniel 2. In Daniel 4, God raises up kings and disposes of kings. The bloodshed is horrific. He wanted to completely destroy the Jewish culture and religion. There was no law, no circumcision, no worship of God. Pagan altars were set up. And then he prospers and performs his will. In verse 24, he is told that he destroys mighty men, overthrows the priestly line, magnifies his own heart, names himself Theos Antiochus Epiphanes. As a matter of fact, people called him Epiphemus and not Epiphanes. Why? Because Epiphemus means a madman. That's what people really called him. But notice this, he actually opposes God himself. He opposes the prince of peace. He, he opposes him. He actually opposes the Lord Jesus Christ. Then without fanfare, Daniel says he comes to an end without human agency. The Bible is brief here. We don't know what happened to the guy. But we do know in history he actually dies of a fever. Think, check this out. A malicious, cruel, pagan, Semite, Antiochus whose word meant the death of tens of thousands of Jews, was not killed by a foreign leader in battle or the intrigue of his court. He died of a virus. Mm. That was something in that day that couldn't even be seen under a microscope. Just showed up overnight and you were dead in a hammer. Nothing you could do about it. God is so powerful that all he needs is a microscopic little bug to take down the cruelest dictator who ever lived in this world. And I've got news for you, folks. God can take down any ruler in the world with a microscopic bug overnight. Whether it be the coronavirus or whatever it is, God controls all things. Don't think he doesn't, because he does. History bears it out that our God controls all things. So the vision is true. It's taking its toll on Daniel. Uh, it's kind of like the sickness I've been enduring for the last two weeks. The NAS says the dude was just worn out. I mean, just the vision itself that he receives. But don't you love this part? He just goes back to work. Uh, oh, isn't that good? Do what you're supposed to do next, church family. When you read the prophecies in the Bible, uh, again, you ought to know that God is in control but in the meantime, just don't rest on your laurels and say, well, I'm just going float to through, float through time and do nothing. No, folks, you've got the king's business to do. The king of kings and his business. This should be instructed to all of us as the people of God. I love the commentary written by Sinclair Ferguson. Here's what he says. Daniel returned to the duties to which God had called him. He did not retire from the world in view of the evil days that were coming. Nor did he go to the opposite extreme and live on a high visionary excitement. Instead, he just did his duty. Now, folks, Daniel's attitude, I think, illustrates a huge, wonderful biblical principle for us. In view of what our future holds, we've got to live holy lives now. How are you doing in this? By the way, how are you doing with the holiness thing? I mean, don't tell me that Jesus is your Lord and Master and you live like the devil. Don't tell me that, you, that Christ's nature is in you. And yet you have no desire to live for God. If you have no desire to live for God, you're not saved. Period. Because the ones the Lord saves become a new creation. The old is passed away and behold all things become new. And here's what a true saint does in light of the coming future. Which... God is in control of, but what does a true saint do? What does he do? Well, he realizes there's a conflict between this world and the world that is to come. But he keeps doing his duty. He does what God has called him to do. And that's what I'm going to do till I'm dead. I'm going to preach the word. And you can run me off if you want to, but I'm going to go down to some other church and preach the word. Right? Or I'm going to go to the jail and preach the word. The fact of the matter is, I'm going to do my duty until God takes me home. How shall we then live? Let's do the king's business. 
What does that mean? Let's walk in obedience. Let's obey God and His Word. Why? Because it's firmly fixed in the heavens and you can take it to the bank that God has a perfect track record. You can believe His Word. Live in obedience and holiness. Purify yourself even as He is pure. I heard a story once of John Wesley who was riding uh, to a preaching engagement and he was stopped by a stranger who asked him, what would you do if you knew Christ was going to return today at noon? And Wesley reached into his saddlebag and he retrieved his diary and read out his engagements for the rest of the day and the morning and the next day and said, this is what I'm going to be doing, right? This is what I'm going to be doing. His knowledge of the future kingdom of God allowed him to live in the already of the kingdom now. And that's what the saints of God ought to be doing. Now, that's the one thing by way of application. The Millerites, have you ever heard of these dudes? They didn't get back to work. As a matter of fact, they took the 2300 days and they made a prediction that Jesus would come back in 1840. Last time I checked, he didn't. All right? So the Millerites, and then they adjusted it. Jesus did not come back again. They figured they miscalculated that somehow or another. Uh, not a single solitary person has ever been right when they predicted the day. The Millerites actually met on a mountain and waited. Miller would be the unwanted father of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. The fulfillment, actually, of this prophecy took place under Judas Maccabeus. He actually recaptured Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, set up a new altar. And it is actually memorialized every year in the celebration in Jewish culture called the Hanukkah. Every year. That's what that is a celebration of, of the rededication of the temple. So all of this foreshadows hostility that's coming our way. Are y'all listening? You live at ease in the United States of America. This is an anomaly. No one else in the known world lives like you do as believers. No one. Everybody else in every country in the world is persecuted more for the faith than we are. Check this out. It's not always going to be that way. It's coming. And the, the Bible is reminding us of hostility that is coming in the future. That mystery of lawlessness that was, that was at work there or is at work today. And it's going to be that way until Jesus comes back. Final thing. Our God is in control of the Alexanders of the world and the Antiochuses of the world. Aren't you thankful? The God of heaven uses them to accomplish his purposes. And then he'll turn right around and punish them for their sin. And he'll kill them with a virus. Something you can't see under a microscope. That ought to make you fearful. It ought to make us take a deep breath and say, The God who is in heaven is God. And we can't manipulate his character. We can't squeeze him into our mold. And the moment you take God away from the Bible and make him into your own making, then it's a mere illusion to you. It's not true. The God of the Bible is the only God that exists. And his character we must preach. So God provided transportation through Alexander. He provided Roman roads through the Romans. Why? So that the gospel could go down these roads and people could read the Bible and they could be saved. This is how God works. Even in the midst of raising up a terrible king, God has a plan to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. What the Koine language did was flatline all the dialects of the world so that everybody could hear the gospel. Created those Rome uh, roads. God brings up Alexander's, Alexander's and then he takes them down with typhoid fever. God raises up Antiochus to be the rod of his wrath against sin and then he sends a fever to take them down. And as you look around this world, don't be discouraged. God is doing exactly what he intends to do Chapter 2 reminds us, and no man can stay his hand. I didn't make that up. That's why I started the sermon by reading that, right? No man can stay his hand. One final thing. Do y'all see the utter reliability of the Word of God? Oh, when I came here three and a half years ago, here's my one desire. That your people, O oh God, would love your Word. That I would be faithful to preach, thus saith the Lord. I'm not, I'm not asking for all of you to like me. 
I don't mind hanging out with you. If you'll take me fishing or hunting, I'm in there, all right? I'm not asking all of you to like me, but I'm telling you this. You'll never be able to say about this preacher that I didn't preach the Word. I gave you exactly what this book says, and now you're responsible for what you hear. And I'm telling you, folks, the Bible is utterly reliable. You can take it to the bank. I believe it from my radiator to my tailpipes. All right? Every aspect of the Word of God, every jot and every tittle is going to come to fruition. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. So it's reliable. Believe it. And if you're a doubter of God's Word, my question is, by what authority do you have to doubt this Word? Folks, 200 years before the king ever lived, 300 years before he ever lived, God said this was going to happen. And it happened exactly like God said it would happen. You try making a prophecy 200 years ahead, or 300 years ahead before it happens. God's Word, utterly reliable. Don't you love that old song, Ancient Words? God, impart these ancient words to us. To God be the glory. Amen. Father, you've done great things. And Lord, I know that, Lord, uh, we're ratcheting up, listening ears. And Lord, I know that to sit under the word, something as long as chapter 8, Lord, people can phase out on me and glaze over like a donut. Lord, I know that. Father, I know that it's hard to listen in our day to someone communicate biblical truth for 40 minutes. I get it. But God, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. God, you've called us to be responsible, to listen to the word. And Lord, what an incredible prophecy Daniel gives us in chapter 8. Lord, when it's all said and done, this is encouragement to us. Comfort that you are in control of all kings, all nations. And in the end, you're going to win. And the Bible says that the saints will get the kingdom. God, that's so good. So refreshing for us to hear And in the meantime, Lord, let us do the king's business. God, help us to be obedient Christians. Help us to to live a life of holiness. Help us to make disciples. Be about your business until you either take us home or until you return in all of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.